Any John Lennon Imagine Beatles fans in the room? Am I the only one? Okay, all right, good. I knew I liked y'all for some reason or another. <laughs> Big Beatles fan. My name is Brian Culbertson. I am the senior pastor here at Refuge. And as David said in his welcome, Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore and restore their faith in Jesus in his church. All of those words, every single one of them in that sentence, in our motto is important. Every last one of them, including that word I want to talk about tonight, explore. From day number one, we wanted this to be a church where it was truly safe to explore your faith. No judgment if you came to different conclusions, no sales pitches from me trying to convince you how wrong you were, a safe place to explore your faith. Now, as I mentioned, Imagine, that was one of my favorite songs as a kid. I'm a piano player. That's one of the easiest little riffs you could ever learn. It's, it's like three notes, great little easy song to learn. I love the lyrics as a kid. I'm like, oh, he's such a prophet, man. He just speaks such truth. Now, as an adult, I'm like, that's pretty sappy and naive because I'm a bit more jaded now. But the opening stanza, let me read it back to you. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. How does that sit with you? Likely it depends on your beliefs about heaven and about hell. We're walking towards Easter with a series called The Way and the Truth and the Life of Jesus. And we find ourselves now in a section called The Difficult Truth of Jesus. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at some of the difficult teachings and the difficult words of Jesus. And as you read the words of Jesus, there is no shortage of options. And so I told Nicole, who's leading and putting this series together for our teaching team, I said, Nicole, give me whatever. I love a challenge. You tell me what I need to teach. And Nicole, she divvied them out. She says, Brian, you get outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, because you know how I love the warm and fuzzy ones. For a lot of us, Jesus' teaching around hell are some of the most difficult words of Jesus. If you've gone through a crisis of faith, if you've came from Christianity from the outside, a God who sends his children to an eternity of torment is difficult. Now, a lot of us grew up in churches where the concept of hell was used as leverage by well-meaning pastors to motivate you to become a Christian. If you've ever been there, you know how it goes. Pastors up front, getting to the end of the service, the serious organ music starts to play, all heads bowed, all eyes closed. Raise your hand if you don't want to burn in hell for eternity. <laughs> I see that hand. <laughs> and maybe it was not quite that overt, maybe it was more inferred. And the writers of the gospel certainly give the pastors ammunition to go down that path. And so we're going to look at just one teaching or actually three separate teachings that kind of lead that way tonight. Matthew 25. If you're not on our Facebook page or our email group, we want you to sign up for that. But every week I post homework so you can kind of read along in advance what we're going to be teaching on. This week you were to read Matthew chapter 25. And if you've read that, you see that it is a chapter of three parables. So let me take you through these three parables real quick with the time that we have. The first one is the parable of the ten brides. There's these 10 bridesmaids 
Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. That's what the parable says. Five of these bridesmaids, they planned. They put plenty of oil in their lamps, and so they planned for their bridegroom. Five of them planned, okay? The other five, here's what Scripture says, verse 11. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. Difficult words of Jesus. Next parable in the chapter, parable of the talents. This one's pretty famous. Most of you know it. Man's going on a long trip, calls together three of his servants, and he entrusts different sums of money to each of these servants. The man leaves, and his servant A says, I'm going to take that money. I'm going to invest that money. And so the servant invests the money, and he gets a 500% return on investment. It's amazing. Bought Tesla stock or something. I have no idea. Servant B, he takes the money. It's a little bit less, so he takes that money, and he goes to work with that money and starts building a business, and he actually earns twice the amount that the master gave him, and he contributes it to the pot. Servant C is actually given the least amount of money, and so he decides what he's going to do is he's going to dig a hole, and he just takes that hole, and he hides the master's money so that he can keep it safe. That's what Scripture says. The master returns. He asks each servant for an account of the money. Each servant reports back to the account. Servant A says what they've done. Servant B says what they've done. And the master replies, well done, my good and faithful servant. Then we get to servant C, and I'll just read to you how that one plays out. Verse 25. Servant C says this. He says, I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is all your money back. He kept it safe. Here is all your money back. Verse 26, but the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Verse 28, then the master ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Verse 30, and now we're about to get to the good stuff. Now, throw this useless service servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the exact verse Nicole gave me to preach on, by the way. How do those two parables sit with you? I mean, as you hear them, like, what kind of emotions well up? What kind of thoughts are you having? And it's important to remember parables are, are not videotapes of life. They are stories of Jesus, and they are stories designed to challenge us. They are stories designed to provoke us and to motivate us. So how does the bridesmaids, being left outside of the party, how does that provoke you? Does the guy who buried the money so he wouldn't lose it, being called useless, throwing into outer darkness where there be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, does that motivate you? By the way, I had to look it up this week. I didn't know what weeping and gnashing of teeth, it sounds terrible. So I'm like, what is that exactly? And the commentary that I found said, imagine hitting your thumb with a hammer, clenching your jaw, that's grinding your teeth, closing your eyes, crying. That's what weeping and gnashing of teeth is. And it's an expression of extreme pain and discomfort. 
Likewise, if we look up outer darkness in the commentaries, if you use different commentaries as you study scripture, outer darkness, they say, is no light, which is an illustration of the complete absence of God. Of course, that depends on what commentary you go to and hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it. So far, so good, right? What a feel-good, warm, and fuzzy chapter. Let's continue. There's one more. It's kind of a parable, kind of a story, kind of a teaching. It's called the final judgment. And it goes like this, verse 31. But when the Son of Man, that's Jesus' name typically for himself, when Jesus comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his throne. So this is the second coming. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate them, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Verse 37 says, then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you and so on and so forth? And verse 40 says, and the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. Verse 41, though, people on the right. Now we go to the people on the left. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And he goes through the whole list. Verse 45, he says, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me and they will go away into eternal punishment. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Does Jesus leave us that option? That's been debated since the resurrection of Jesus. You can look it up. This is historical. For the first 400 years of the church, there were actually three equally but opposing views held on hell. I'll just take you through them real quick. The first view is kind of the one you're probably most familiar with. In seminary, it's called eternal conscious torment. It's our modern version of hell that you're probably uh, familiar with and used to hearing about, eternal conscious torment. That's view one of hell, of outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. View number two is the annihilation view. Simply, this view is very simple. You die, you're dead. If you did not know Jesus, you simply die and you cease to exist. Annihilation. Third one is universal reconciliation. This view says that all are ultimately saved. No matter how you lived your life, no matter if or not you put your view in Jesus, your hope in Jesus, everyone at the end will be saved. And underneath universal reconciliation, there's people that believe in purgatory and universal pardon and the doctrine of getting a second chance and all these other things. But those are the main three right there. And if you look back in history, 
First 400 years of the church, if you went to Rome or you went to Turkey or you went to the different regions, each different region had a seminary, and each seminary taught varying different points of view depending on what seminary you were in. Again, this is historical. It's not up for debate. Google it. Look it up. There's even one guy, St. Thomas. You know, you've heard of St. Thomas, the island. You probably know St. Thomas Aquinas. He actually took the uh, eternal punishment step further. He said in his teachings to his seminary students, he said when we died as saved Christians, it would be the joy of the saint to watch those in hell suffer. It's a little morbid, right? It's like an eternal nanny nanny boo boo for those in hell, heaven versus those in hell. Now, guess what? Both then and today, those groups existed. Both then and today, both of those groups, or all three of those groups, use scripture to support their belief system. And so the universal group would go like this. They would say, eternal punishment? What a horrible concept. And it is a zero reflection of the love and grace of Christ. And the eternal torment group would say, Jesus I mean, he's the one that talks about hell more than anyone else in Scripture. And every time he talks about it, it's always a place of anguish and misery and suffering. I mean, you guys, have you never read Matthew 25? Jesus literally uses the word eternal punishment. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Remember that one? If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Because it's better to lose one part of the body than for the whole body to burn in hell. The universal guy speaks up. He says, hell, I love how you guys love using five different words translated five different ways and turn that into hell because it fits your motives. He continues, obviously, you guys missed a lot of scripture too. It says, 1 John 4, the father sent the son as savior of what? The world. Not some people, the world. Hebrews 2.9, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, for he suffered death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for, not some people, not most people, everyone. The eternal conscious torment guy says, true, but you got to accept the grace first before you can receive that gift. Universal, so he's not going to let go. He says, what about Acts 3? And Jesus Christ is restoration of all things. 1 Corinthians 15, for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. How much clearer can it be? All means all. By the way, Paul never mentions a dreadful afterlife ever in his teachings. The annihilation group has been quiet this whole time, but they've had enough. They say, hold up, hold up. You're both wrong. It's not justice for someone for all eternity to suffer just because they didn't follow Jesus. The punishment does not fit the crime. Nor is it justice that an unrepentant sinner who raped and murdered be my heavenly next door neighbor for the rest of my life. Annihilation makes more sense. And if you ever read the Old Testament, I know it's difficult to read, but you know, you would think that God would make some effort to tell people about hell, but there's never any mention of hell in the Old Testament ever. Don't you think if it was God's plan to roast people for an eternity, he would have told someone? Moses, uh, oops, forgot. I'll tell David. Forgot again, I'll get Jeremiah, Isaiah. No mention of anything other than Sheol, which is just a place of rest 
out in the Old Testament. And then he quotes John 3.16. By the way, David, you're still teaching John 3.16 next week. This is what he's going to be teaching on next week. John 3.16. We know that verse, right? Those people who believe they get eternal life, Jesus says. And those who don't shall perish. Doesn't say they're going to be tormented for eternity, right? Or what about Romans? The wage of sin is death, not an eternity burning in the fires of hell. And so the annihilist, he says, fire consumes. That's what Jesus is getting at with all of this. Fire consumes, poof, annihilated, no more. The universalist says, no, no, you got it wrong. The fire refines. Everyone must be refined by the fire, whether it's in this life or the next. The fire refines everyone. And the traditional eternal punishment people says, no. You guys got it wrong. The fire burns, causes pain. And because you're immortal now, that pain lasts forever. I step in. I say, guys, 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 hold up. Stop fighting. Refuge is a safe place for all people to explore and restore their faith in Jesus and his church. My daughter, Emery, she has a Lego set that we got her. It's quite the Lego set. She spends way too much screen time, so we're really just trying to get creative and getting her off her devices and to do something more productive. She loves Legos, and so we got her a 4,000-piece Lego set. This 4,000-piece Lego set, it had uh, 474 pages of instructions. The book is this thick, step-by-step. This is my 11-year-old. It says for 18-plus, but we're like, Emery, you got this. You You can handle this Lego set. And she's been working on it. The dogs have eaten some of the pieces, so it's not fitting together quite right. But you could build a lot of things with all of these Legos that came in a box. It's a big box of Legos. But it makes the most sense to build what it was intended to build. In this case, it's the 1990s Home Alone house that should be built at the end of the day when she's done with it and she's close. And so before you guys zone out on me and be like, what kind of church is this? I want you to hear me here. I believe in truth. Not the postmodern, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. I believe in truth. That there is a right answer and that there is a wrong answer. And as Christians, we should spend our lives wrestling with how the pieces are supposed to fit together as God intends. But in doing so, we need to allow room for everyone to explore. Because we don't have a 474-page step-by-step instruction manual with pictures of how every single piece fits together. What we got is a canon of scripture written over the course of thousands of years, completely removed from our culture, completely removed from our context, written in thousands or multiple languages. We've got committees who have translated. Many of those committees have brought along their theological biases, just like all of us do when we go in and read the text. And so I wanna mention here last summer, We hired a full-time paid lead pastor. It was kind of the second attempt at that. We wanted to bring on a lead pastor with the ultimate goal for that person to take my job long-term. I can't be the pastor of the church forever. We know we need to plan for the future. And so that was steps in that direction. 
And when John got here on his third or fourth sermon, he decided to preach his beliefs in a universalist hell, which is not generally where we've been at a church. And he essentially preached the message that after folks die, everyone gets a second chance. It's a second chance doctrine, theology, even mentions any certain uh, sermon, even Hitler gets that second chance. And you will imagine I was not here that Saturday night. On Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, I got a lot of phone calls and text messages and emails, and that's fine, and I understand that. And we even had a few people leave the church because they said, well, that's just the icing on the cake. So we don't believe in hell here now. And then a couple months later, we let John go. And just to clear up any confusion in case you had any, we did not let him go because of that sermon. Though I did tell him on your third or fourth sermon, it probably wasn't the best judgment to go there. But John is a great guy, and I still believe that. We let John go because he was hired to be a senior pastor, and in this stage of his career, he's just not ready for that position. I think an associate role is probably best for him. We were hiring for a senior pastor role. But I mention all of that because we are all exploring our faith, or at least we all should be exploring our faith, and that includes me, and that includes our teaching team. What a blessing it is as refuge right now that we actually have a teaching team, three of us. I get more time to write my sermons, and so I told Karen, I got to 3,000 words, which is what typically a sermon is, and I thought I had just finished writing my intro, so that, that was part of the problem this week. I maybe have too much time to write my sermons, but I get a lot more time to put my sermons together, and I get to come here now every couple of weeks and be fed, which is a serious blessing by sitting under these other teachers. It's a very unique situation, though, because all three of us that are teaching, we're from various backgrounds, doctrinally, theologically. David, if you don't know, he was raised a Southern Baptist, good old North Carolina Southern Baptist. He's a seminary graduate from Southern Baptist Seminary graduate, right? Southern Baptist Seminary graduate, theology and biblical studies. If you ever wondered why he loves potlucks, now you know it's the Baptist upbringing of David. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> now, Nicole, she's not here tonight. She got the COVID, so she'll be back when she gets over the COVID. Nicole was raised a holy roller. As she says it, I'm like, what are you? She says, I'm very Pentecostal. So that's Nicole's upbringing. And so Nicole's upbringing, as she was raised, they lived in a, a literal six-day creation. They were passionate about speaking in tongues. The rapture was a really big deal and something we've never, ever even talked about here. But that was big for her in her upbringing. And if you don't know me, I raised as a Mormon, devout practicing Mormon, which isn't even on the Christian reservation. So I wasn't even a Christian growing up. I was raised that coffee and tea are just as bad as heroin, that we were to get baptized for dead people. I was taught secret handshakes to get into heaven and had to wear holy underwear so that I was protected. That was my upbringing. Refuge is a safe place for all people, including our teachers who are still exploring our own beliefs on hell and the rapture and potlucks. <laughs> and I can speak for our team because I've asked them, Every one of us, because we've had changing beliefs dramatically over the course of our lives, every one of us have had flags planted deeply on hills. And we planted that flag, and we were willing to die for that flag, and we had Bible verses to support it, and we no longer believe those things. And I would imagine, so have you. 
You may say I'm a dreamer, but the fact that you all are here tells me that I'm probably not the only one. And so I was texting with uh, Nicole earlier today, asking her how she was feeling. Um, David and Nicole and I are all sharing our messages with each other, just to make sure we're all kind of on the same page, anything we should say, not say, or whatever. And I love Nicole texting me back, and I'll just read it to you. She says, sometimes the difficult truth is that we, what we believe is not the truth or doesn't hold water the more we explore our faith in Jesus. And I know a lot of you know and understand that. And so we need to be sure as Christians, when we, we find that new hill, that new set of beliefs, and we go in and we plant that flag, that we remember who we once were, that we remember what we once believed, so that we give a wide berth of grace so that others can continue to explore their faith. Over the years, I've had a lot of people get frustrated with me because when I preach, I don't always give clear-cut black and white answers. A couple years ago, right after COVID, um, I gave a message on evolution and creationism, and I had a couple friends show up that night because they were curious. They're like, I, I want to hear the answers. How's evolution play into this whole thing? And so they came. I gave multiple points of views, but I didn't give any answers. I hinted that I was a biology major and kind of maybe if you, if you listen to the words closely, you could figure out where I was, but I just left it there. Nuanced, no answers. Our teaching team isn't here to tell you what to believe. That's brainwashing. Our job isn't to sell you our beliefs. That's indoctrination. I've taught on hell before, multiple times, in fact. We typically go verse by verse through scripture, so it's kind of hard to avoid. That word pops up more than you would think. And as I teach that each time, it's tough to decide how much of my personal beliefs to reveal and how much I don't. I do believe in a literal hell. That's me personally. I taught on it last summer, July 2022. The sermon's called What the Hell? If you Google that on our Facebook page, you can get a more detailed view of my personal beliefs on hell. And as I've read scripture from cover to cover, that's today, the Lego set, how it fits best together in my mind. And so it is where I have planted my flag on hell. I planted it pretty loosely. And I'm open to relocating that flag as I age and I continue to explore God's word in my faith. I do, and I'll mention this here, I don't believe the picture of hell that most of us have been sold is correct. You know, that pit of fire, God throwing people down into the pit of fire. They're trying to crawl out. God slams the lid closed. Blah, ha, ha, ha. I don't think that is the picture of hell that the Bible presents. And I always use C.S. Lewis because he's been a, my guide through my faith to help explain things in much better ways than I could. But here's what he says. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, but they won't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. And so my views on hell is actually a view of a monument of God's free will that he gives us and freedom. That those in hell somehow, some way, have made the choice to be there. And though they may suffer, they aren't willing ever to make the choice to not be there. And to give an example of that, we see that all the time in this life, right? People going through the own hell that they've created, but unwilling to let go of that hell for a better life. 
And so for God to ever force anyone out of their hell would be a violation of our freedom of choice and free will. In a nutshell, that's my beliefs. But to be honest, my beliefs on hell are still pretty vague. And I'll let you in a little bit more on my own views, not to say that this is what you need to believe. Believe like I believe or you're a heretic. I simply say it to say, if you would disagree with me, it's okay. This is a safe place for all of us. And also to encourage you tonight, be open to explore new hills and to plant your flags as you explore God's word. And I'll mention, I say explore God's word. That's our curriculum to explore. There's some great extracurriculars. There's podcasts. There's these sermons. There's devotional books. There's blogs. There's everything under the sun out there today. Those are extracurriculars. That's fine. But send some time in the curricular. God's word. Not just a verse here. Not just a chapter there. Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover, over and over. That's the difficult work of exploration. Nicole, last week in her sermon, she talked about the things that we are all holding on to that Jesus has asked us to let go of, things that we use to kind of classify our identity. Remember the rich young ruler, his thing was his wealth. That was his identity. For some of us, our identity is so wrapped up in our beliefs, being black and white, this is the way I've always believed, and my answers are the only correct ones, that it's become idolatry. Call it the sin of certainty. And for some of us others in this room, we are so open-minded that our mind has become closed to those who are not as open-minded as us, which is in fact makes you exceptionally closed-minded in worshiping your own idol of your own creation. Did I bash everybody enough right there? We're all sinners. We all pick and choose what texts we choose to emphasize. We all push texts aside that we don't want to deal with. We all bring in our own filters and lenses and biases. And so for refuge to be a safe place, we need to be willing to admit how complex and how complicated our Lego set of beliefs is to put together and be willing to say, I happen to land here but I'd love to learn more about how you've built your Lego set. Let's do coffee. So let me try to wrap this up and tie all this together in some semblance to challenge you maybe and to provoke you maybe because that's the point of these parables. Just sit on this question. If there was no afterlife, no hell below us, no heaven above us, if there was no afterlife, would you still follow Jesus? I mean, a lot of us have spent too much time thinking that following Jesus is all about avoiding hell, getting some mansion in the sky, and not about living this life. When Jesus calls us to be apprentices, when he calls his disciples, he never says, I'm going to roast you forever if you don't do what I say. It's never. It's always an invitation an invitation into something. He says, follow me, walk with me. Remember from the last uh, study, learn my unforced rhythms of grace. 
Flip the paradigm. Look at the world upside down. Bring my kingdom to earth. Start living a life today of joy and peace and love, not waiting until you die for heaven, but heaven right here. And so with a sermon like this, a look in the mirror is always helpful. We can learn a lot about ourselves and our beliefs and our identity if we look at what we believe as individuals about hell. Are we so focused on the topic of hell because it's distraction from actually obeying the difficult teachings of Jesus, like loving our enemies, doing good to those who harm us? Do we want a hell because there's no justice in this world and we need justice in the end? Do we not want a hell because we think this world is hell enough? Do we ever think, well, I mean, if everyone is redeemed, why wouldn't I just do whatever I wanted in this life? It's a very telling thought. And so what do these questions tell us about our hearts? That the only reason I'm not killing and raping and murdering and stealing and being a horrible person is because I'm scared to go to hell? Or do I truly believe that my life right here, right now is richer because I know the grace and love of Christ, that his spirit can bring me peace and joy and make me a better human being? See, the warnings we read in these three parables tonight, if you go back one chapter, he's actually talking to the Pharisees. And if you don't know this, by the way, the Pharisees are the ones who already thought they had all the right answers. They had their flags firmly planted in the ground. And so that is who Jesus is teaching. But as I read through this chapter multiple times this week, here's my thought. If there is a hell, and I do believe that there is, all three of these parables tell me that's exactly where I should go. I'm not always prepared when Jesus calls upon my life. I often repeatedly squander the talents he gives me, bury them, sometimes blow them, and go into the last one. How many times a day do I walk by the beggar, the prisoner, the hungry, the naked, the sick, the thirsty, in essence, walking by Jesus himself? So whatever hell there is, I read those, how that sits with me, that's what I'm deserving of. One thing that has helped me with my theology on hell is the garden, Gethsemane, when Jesus is there just before his death. And I don't know what Jesus has shown. We're not completely towed, but he has shown something, some sort of, we'll call it hell. And as he sees this hell, he says, my father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken away from me. And if you've read the Old Testament, the cup is mentioned oftentimes. The cup is always God's wrath or its ruin or its desolation or its misery. In other words, the cup is the wages of our sin, whatever that is, which ultimately leads to separation from God. That's the hell Jesus has shown in whatever way, shape, or form that looks like. He's shown what each and every one of us deserve. Eternal conscious torment, annihilation, a refining fire, whatever that is. But the truth of hell was revealed to the truth incarnate in the garden. And when that was revealed to him with trembling, with sweat like blood, he pleads with the father. He comes undone. He falls to his knees. And then he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. 
And immediately after saying those words, he returns to his disciples, his apprentices, his friends. And you know the story, he finds them what? Sleeping. Jesus has shown hell. And he's shown just how much the people he is going there to save will fail him. And just to make the point clear, that cycle repeats two more times. Father, remove this cup, not my will but yours, goes to the disciples that are asleep. Father, remove this cup, not my will but yours, goes to the disciples one more time. They're still asleep. Jesus possessed the power, he's God, to remove that cup himself. All he had to do was say the word, call down legions of angels, trade away the cross. But had he done that, all of human history would have come to a halt and we all would have ended up where we deserve in outer darkness, whatever shape or form you believe that is. And so regardless of your beliefs tonight on hell, that's something we all I think, as Christians agree upon. But I think we can rewrite the song, imagine there's a heaven. I admit, sometimes that's pretty hard to do. Maybe there is or maybe there isn't a hell below us, but above us is only the love of Jesus. And so we're going to come into a time of communion tonight as we close, and we're going to share a meal together as a family of believers with beliefs as varied as every single person in this room tonight. But we share in this meal together because we agree on one thing, that Jesus took our cup of sin, that he bled on a cross so that we could drink from the cup of everlasting life, that Jesus' body was consumed by the fires of hell so that we could be given new birth and redemption. So I'm going to ask you to stand. The band's going to come up and grab the communion emblems first. And then as they do that, fill in behind them. Take the uh, juice and the bread. As you return to your seat, you can eat that as you feel led. As we sing, you can do it right away. You can wait and do it until there's a point in the song where you feel compelled to eat the bread and the juice. But we're going to close together as a family of God with varied beliefs, but sitting under the cross. Please stand.
saying earlier about our anxious thoughts that you're you're there for us you sustain us and how your love you're always there you love us more than words can describe and your grace is an ocean and we're sinking it just blows my mind of your love we're never alone no matter what we're going through our anxious thoughts our loneliness we feel like it but we're not because you're there because you love us and your grace is never ending. And I thank you for that. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here again um, next week, John 3.16. But read the entire chapter of John, chapter 3. It's not First John, it's the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, great story there um, that David's going to be teaching on next week. This week as you go out there, if you have questions, about hell. I, I could have taught for six hours probably tonight on the various views of hell, my views, where I've came up with them. I would love to talk with anyone who wants to go deeper and go further or wants pointing to Bible verses or books that can, they can look at or commentaries or whatever. I'm glad to help in any way, shape, or form. But this week, man, as much as we want to think about hell, think about living in the grace that you've been giving and the love you've been given in Christ. And so serve the poor and the needy and the naked and everybody that God has put in front of you who is dealing with hell in their life, whether it be cancer or poverty or can't make the rent payment, they've got a hell that they're going through and he's put you here to be the Jesus that they see today. God bless. Love you all. See you next week.